Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. It's a Wednesday edition of PFT PM. Didn't do one Tuesday because I knew there would be more news today. Probably do one tomorrow and then call it until after Memorial Day. Pending a crazy, ugly, bad news dump of a Friday afternoon into Memorial Day weekend. League meeting today in Florida. A lot of news got generated early in the day. Let's go over some of that. I still have a problem with the the effort to tweak, and tweak is an understatement. The new rule regarding pass interference, where replay review is available for all instances of pass interference, just like it would be any other reviewable play. Now the competition committee emerges from this meeting with a blank check to carve up the rule as it sees fit. I can't think of a time this has happened. It probably has. I just can't think of one. Where the competition committee is given advance license by ownership to do whatever it wants to do. And I guess the argument from the competition committee as a practical matter would go like this. Hey, owners, you forced us into this change, this sweeping change, and as we begin to process it and digest it, we realize it's going to create some messes. We'd like to have the ability to use a mop as we see fit. And the first area where they are likely to mop is automatic review of pass interference during those circumstances where automatic review would otherwise be available. Final two minutes of the half, overtime, touchdowns, turnovers. Now, the way I've seen it couched today, they're only focusing on the final two minutes of either half. I think any instance of automatic review needs to include, or any instance of wiping out automatic review would have to cover all of the areas and all of the times and occasions where automatic review would occur because to me the concern is, and rightfully so, The standard for triggering automatic review is so low. You have a lot of automatic reviews of pass interference. Because remember, automatic review happens mirror image of what it takes to overturn a ruling on the field. You overturn a ruling on the field with clear and obvious evidence that the ruling on the field was wrong. You initiate an automatic review absent clear and obvious evidence that the ruling on the field was right. So when you hear, and it gets vague at times, they'll say after a touchdown, they took a look at it upstairs and they decided it's fine. That doesn't mean they did a full-blown review. That means they looked at the play and they decided that there is clear and obvious evidence that the ruling on the field was correct. So there's there's a gap where, well, you know what? It's not clear and obvious that the ruling is correct. Let's go ahead and let 
345 Park Avenue decide whether there's clear and obvious evidence that the ruling was incorrect. But with pass interference, it's going to be a lot of situations like that when you have automatic review because you have a lot of jostling and pushing and shoving. Unless a guy is just flat out wide open. You know, we see it all the time. The hand fighting, guy makes a catch. No flag, did he push off? Well, you know, there was some contact there. That's when you would have to have an automatic review. Whether it's a catch or a no catch. It could be a catch and you're looking at whether or not there was offensive pass interference. No catch, you look at whether or not there's defensive pass interference. I think they're still going to rely from time to time when they do a full-blown review on the offsetting penalty, which never gets called for pass interference. I can't think of a time, and again, it just may be my feeble brain, I can't think of a time where there were flags thrown on a pass play and the referee says we have offsetting fouls on the play, offensive pass interference number 85, defensive pass interference number 27. It's usually one or the other. I think offsetting is going to be the, the the mulligan that gets used from time to time. But if it happens, it won't be because an automatic review was triggered. This is going to be, if the competition committee does with its blank check what seems to be the plan here, you got to use the red flag. So you better hold your red flag, and you better hope you have a timeout. So this doesn't necessarily fix the Rams Saints problem. But you know what? The next time this happens, the next time there's a 100-year storm, which is how some people in the league wanted to consider what happened between the Rams and the Saints, hey, if you don't keep a red flag around, if you don't keep a timeout, sucks for you. You should have kept one around. So actually, in a roundabout way, what we're going to see is a chilling effect on using the red flag, a chilling effect on coaches throwing that challenge flag. Now, as Shereen Williams pointed out today, you won't see Andy Reid challenge a two- or a three-yard gain. And I wouldn't do that anyway. I would only challenge, and now a lot of the things that I would challenge are already covered, but like a touchdown is automatically reviewable. A play that could have been a touchdown, I feel like that should be automatically reviewable. If it's a pass to the end zone, guy has it two feet down, ball gets knocked out, you think it's a touchdown, it's called not a touchdown, that's an instance where you would use the red flag, assuming it doesn't happen in the final two minutes of either half or overtime. But there aren't a whole lot of instances where I would even consider using the red flag. And and at a minimum, in the field of play, other than a potential scoring play, I would be looking at throwing the red flag at a minimum if we're talking about a first down or not a first down being gained. I'm not doing it for a five-yard gain, six-yard gain. I'm never doing that anyway. But even then, you have to engage in this bizarre game of how many times am I going to get screwed by an incompetent officiating staff? And does that become part of your analysis? Do you have your analytics people crunch the numbers as to how many times each crew screws up? And for certain crews, if they screw up more than others... Do you let a bad call go early because you're expecting to get more later in the game? The stakes are now higher, especially in postseason games, for making your decisions about when you are going to react to getting screwed. And the earlier you get screwed, the more hesitant you're going to be to throw that flag because you're going to want to save one. And I really do think... They need to change the rule to give a guy three flags, three challenges, not 
Well, you get two, and if you get right on the first two, you get a third one. I think coaches have to be more careful now, regardless of whether their analytics suggest it's a good crew, bad crew. They have to be more careful because you don't want to be the reason why you don't have the ability to rectify a, a horrible call. The other thing, the Hail Mary, not making replay review available at all for the Hail Mary. Here's my issue with that. However they define Hail Mary, and it it is astounding to me that Rich McKay thinks it's going to be so easy to define Hail Mary. He's the king of the unintended consequence. However they come up with the definition, it's got to at least be 40 yards, and it's got to be less than 30 seconds. And I look at it this way. The Hail Mary, I think, is a sliding scale. Remember the Arizona-Green Bay playoff game where the Packers were basically Hail Mary, Hail Mary, Hail Mary because you've got a lot of ground to cover. I think it needs to be... And let me just throw out some ideas here as I think out loud about this. Let's say it's 40 yards from the end zone with 10 seconds or less. 50 yards from the end zone with 15 seconds or less. As I say this, I'm thinking, nah, I don't know. It's going to be too complicated. And whatever they end up doing, let's say the final analysis is that replay review is not available for plays with, let's say the 40-yard line is the cutoff and that 10 seconds or less is the cutoff and leave it at that then how many guys have to be in the end zone when the ball's in the air? Or in the end zone when the ball is thrown? Or in the end zone as the ball comes down? How do you determine how many it takes and where they have to be and when? Because no matter what they decide to do, Bill Belichick is going to figure out a way to run a Hail Mary pass that would be subject to replay review by having one fewer guy. And, I, I, you know, how about this? And, and I don't know that you'll want this if you're the NFL. Let's say that replay review is not available at all. I, I don't know that anybody would care enough to do this. But you know what? I mean, if you want to have that Hail Mary ability to throw the red challenge flag at the end of your Hail Mary pass, then there's value to it. Let me give you this example. Let's say they do 40 yards, 10 seconds or less remaining on the clock. However many guys have to be in the end zone. Let's say the minimum is 40 yards from the end zone in 10 seconds. Why wouldn't you throw a quick out to get on the other side of the 40 with, you know, you do it in three seconds? Then you throw the the Hail Mary to the end zone, and all of a sudden, pass interference is on. I don't know that you'll want that if you're the NFL. Do you want that kind of strategy? How to set up a Hail Mary that would be subject to replay review? Do we want that? Do we want teams defending against that, thinking about that? I don't know. Maybe we do. But that's one of the unintended consequences of this. Because whatever the rules are, you're going to have people who adjust the way they play the game and coach the game to mesh with the rules. And the idea is going to be, if you can, put yourself in position where that final last gasp, Hail Mary to the end zone, is subject to replay review. 
Will they start throwing the ball short of the end zone? If that is the dividing line for what is and isn't pass interference. Because you know what? What happens? If you're at the one, right? Let, let, God, this is going to be a mess. And I haven't really thought this through until now. And I know the quality of the execution of the PFTPM podcast today reveals it. But think about this. If the rule is X number of guys in the end zone, we'll just throw it short of the end zone. And then what happens is replay review is available. Pass interference happens. You get the ball at the two-yard line, you get one more shot to win the game. Now, the problem is the guy catches it and gets tackled and the game's over. So... I may be outsmarting myself with this. I just, I, I guarantee you, Bill Belichick will come up with a way to get around this. Whether it's quick out route that gets you on the other side of the line of demarcation, or whether it's throwing the ball short of the end zone and hoping you can, you're going to coach your guys how to induce a collision, or at least you're going to try to, aren't you? Remember when they started talking about the what, what was it the 25 yard line for the touchback and so now they're going to start kicking high short kicks to force returns and we still see that sometimes you're going to at a minimum send coaches to the laboratory to come up with ways to to plan around the unavailability of automatic replay review or not automatic, but the red flag. You want the red challenge flag. Sorry, you want the red challenge flag to be available. Now, look, you get toward the end of the game and you got no timeouts left, you got no red challenge flag, it doesn't matter. But if you have the ability to challenge that Hail Mary, you're going to want to set yourself up in a position where you can throw the ball to a spot and have the opportunity to throw the red challenge flag afterward and hope that there's evidence of a push, a shove, an instance of pass interference that gives you another crack. Why wouldn't you do that? All right, I'm spending a lot of time talking about this. But look, here's here's the problem. They just need to do the damn sky judge and get it over with. Spend the money necessary, and it shouldn't cost that much. You're talking about adding one member to each crew. You put that one member of the crew in black and white stripes so everyone knows that's a member of the crew, and that member is watching Every angle. I don't know how many different cameras are alive at any one point, but you've got the same view that the producer in the truck has. Every camera angle is up. And you can talk to the referee. Hang on. Hang on, Ed. Hang on. Wait, wait, Ed. Wait. Go a little slow here. Wait. I'm looking at this. Uh, You know, you, you didn't throw the flag on that. I think that's pass interference. You know what? I'm looking at this. It's plain as day. Everybody at home, millions of people at home are watching this, and they're seeing that Nikel Roby Coleman wiped out Tommy Lee Lewis, so just throw the flag, and we'll straighten it out. And that's not part of replay review. That is giving one member of the officiating crew the same perspective that we have. That's the problem here. See, this is where the NFL, and I don't know why this happens. I don't know if groupthink keeps them from realizing this, I don't know whether they just don't want to be told what to do by slapdicks like me who don't have the qualifications to provide an opinion. They don't like to be told, you know, they, we, we know best. It's funny, I'm, I'm reading a book now about 
the rise and fall of the American mafia. And when Congress passed the RICO law, which ultimately became a very effective tool for fighting and combating and destroying the mafia, because what used to happen is the Justice Department, the FBI, they would never go for the the top of an organization, they would prosecute whatever crimes they could pick off at the bottom. And because of Omerta, the guys who were out there committing the crimes wouldn't flip. And there was no way to get the person at the top. The person at the top was insulated. The RICO law made it easier to go after the people at the top. But what happened was, and I'm, I'm reading now right at the stage where the people who were responsible for crafting the RICO law were trying to get prosecutors and FBI agents to use the RICO law. And it was mainly an effort to get prosecutors in the Justice Department to, to say, hey, you know, this thing's on the books. Use the damn thing. There was an attitude among the Justice Department that anybody who wasn't a lawyer, anybody who wasn't in the prosecution of business, of crimes business, they didn't know what the hell they were doing. So we're not going to do that. They thought of that. We didn't. No, that's their... Th no, we're not doing that. We know what's best. You don't know. That's the attitude that permeates the NFL. How is there not anyone within that broader NFL power structure that doesn't look at the fact that there's all these people out there who spend most of their time thinking about the NFL, trying to come up with ways to make the NFL better? Why is there not someone there who is responsible for looking at all these various ideas and stealing the ones they like? Peter King had in Football Morning in America this week, 25 different people with an idea for improving the NFL. And and he said in a paragraph or two after the list, the NFL should read these and heed these. These are coming from people who have a vested interest in what's right for the game, and why not look at these, and why not embrace them, and who cares if you have to say to someone, hey, you know what, we used your idea, thank you. So what? You don't owe anybody anything. How the XFLs acknowledged to me that they they uh, they're using my two point shootout idea, and they like it. Good. NFL should take it too. That was what I submitted to Peter King for his twenty five ways to make football better. But man, you know, here's the thing. I don't want to be overly critical of the NFL, but I think of how successful it is financially and the millions of people who love the sport. How much more success would there be? How much more money would they make if they ran it better? I'm not saying they run it poorly, but I guarantee you they could run it better. The overtime rule proposed by Kansas City to guarantee a possession for the team that kicks off to start overtime if the team that receives the opening kickoff of overtime scores a touchdown. That hasn't been voted on it's been kicked to next year, and they're going to study it. Ian Rapport, NFL Media, i.e. the NFL. They're going to study it. What's there to study? What more information do you need to decide whether or not you want to give the team that kicks off to start overtime a chance to match the score? What You either do or you don't, especially for the postseason. The evidence is there. Super Bowl 51 and the 2018 AFC Championship game. Two instances where... Team wins a coin toss, gets the ball, drives down the field, scores a touchdown, and walks away. What more, what more do you need? So just vote on the thing. See, the pro I, think, I think what's going on here, th this is just more of a PR campaign by the NFL. They don't want to vote it down. They don't want to disrespect Clark Hunt, the respected owner of the Chiefs who suggested it. This is what I believe. 
And they also don't want to have a headline that says NFL rejects adjustment to overtime rule. Because if they do that, and then this year there's a conference championship game or a Super Bowl or any other playoff game where that happens, well, you know, they could have fixed it, but the NFL rejected it. Now, is it a significant difference to say they could have fixed it, but they decided to give it a year? I guess then they can say, well, hey, you know what? We studied it and we saw, yeah, you know, we should change it. I don't know what's better or worse, but I just feel like I feel like it's just BS. They just don't want to do it. And they're coming with, with a softer way of, of saying that if uh, you know if they never vote on the thing. So I, I, just, I don't get why they're taking the position, but I kind of get it because they they just they want to soften this a little bit and they, they don't want they don't want to make anyone look bad. The commissioner always speaks at the end of these league meetings. He addressed a couple of topics that are worth mentioning. Roger Goodell said they're not going to interfere with the ongoing investigation, the investigation that was reopened when four weeks ago, tomorrow, that very troubling audio emerged where Tyreek Hill threatens the mother of his children. And the league's going to basically not do anything until that process ends, which is fine. That's fine. I, I don't know. Is it fine? I understand it, and I understand the hesitancy of getting involved in an ongoing investigation, but there's two different issues here, as I see it. You've got the question of whether or not Tyreek Hill engaged in child abuse, which is what is being investigated. By the authorities in Kansas. Then you've got the question of whether or not Tyreek Hill engaged in a personal conduct for policy violation just simply by saying on that audio, you need to be terrified of me too, bitch. Look at the personal conduct policy. I raised this as it relates to Ezekiel Elliott. Actual or threatened physical violence. Isn't you need to be terrified of me too? Isn't that a threat? And given his history... Even though he was never punished by the NFL for choking and beating this same person in December of 2014, shouldn't that be enough? Couldn't that be enough to act? That's one violation. You can act against him on that without touching the child abuse aspect of it. And what are they going to do now? Right? Sometimes these investigations move slowly. Tyree kills away from the team. The Chiefs have not yet cut him. I don't know that the Chiefs are going to cut him. What does the NFL do? How long do you wait? At some point, he's got to be on the commissioner exemplist. See, I think the way the NFL handles this, they don't use the commissioner exemplist until they have to. And they feel like they only have to when there are games going on or when training camp is is started. And, and that's just a couple of months away. You need something from the folks in Kansas. Because the idea of Tyree Kill showing up for training camp, and, and all of what the posture is, at some point the union's got to say, hey, what the hell's going on? This guy's either on the commissioner exemplist or he's not. And he essentially is. I think that's the real takeaway. He essentially is. At some point the NFL is going to have to rubber stamp it as commissioner exemplist. But if this drags on a couple more months, 
it's clear that that's his status because that's the impact of his status. And the team really doesn't have the ability to put the guy on the commissioner exempt list. That's something that falls within the jurisdiction of the league. But, you know, the, the, uh, unique situations can create bastardizations of the way the rules should be. But I, I think the league could, if it wanted to, take action against Tyree Kill for the things that were said on that audio. He's acknowledged, his lawyer did at least, that that's him, that he said those things. And I think the statement in and of itself, that's the thing that, because people, you know, Chiefs fans, and I understand you want to have your great player play for you. You don't want your player to show up at the Browns like Kareem Hunt did. And there's some Chiefs fans who are very touchy about the idea that Kareem Hunt has a second chance and he's making the most of it. And Tyree Kill may not get one. And how dare you take a stand against Tyree Kill but not take a stand against Kareem Hunt? Well, look, with Tyree Kill... And I know there's no proof that that he actually engaged in child abuse with his three-year-old son. For me, the thing that disqualifies him from playing in the NFL is that emergence of the same Mr. Hyde who committed those heinous acts in December of 2014. We suspended disbelief for three-plus years of his NFL career. Yeah, I know I did. I know I was very troubled by the news of choking and beating a pregnant woman pleading guilty to it, entering the NFL, being praised widely for his skills. I remember when he was a rookie, NFL.com used a picture of Tyree Kill as their background at the top of their Twitter page, and people were like, hey, what are you doing celebrating this guy? But I think over time, as he played better and better, we, we just kind of, you know, oh, that, that was a different guy. That's not him. That was a mistake. He made a mistake. I hate that. He made a mistake. He mistakenly choked and he thought it was somebody else he was choking. And I mean, what's, what's the mistake? He snapped in that moment. The question is, is he capable of snapping again? And when I heard that audio, when I heard that menacing tone, when I heard him say, you need to be terrified of me too, bitch, that told me that the guy's still in there. Regardless of what he did or didn't do to his son. So that's one of the reasons I've been as adamant about this. The commissioner also addressed the Robert Kraft situation. And the key takeaway here is this. The NFL won't do anything until after the legal process is resolved. And what we have now, prosecution is, as a practical matter, stayed. While the prosecution appeals the, the question of whether or not the video that was obtained, the surveillance video, is going to be admitted at trial. Multiple judges have ruled in various cases down there that the surveillance video went too far, that the process went too far, that innocent people were being videotaped while they were getting massages and nothing more. And there, no, there was no effort to minimize the intrusion on the privacy of individuals who were not engaged in any type of wrongdoing. So the appeal courts in Florida, and there are two levels. That process now has to play out. And my understanding is it could take a year alone just to get a decision from the first level, the intermediate appellate court. Then you have to go to the Florida Supreme Court. Now, what could happen here is the prosecution could wait for things to die down and just drop the case. Then the question becomes, is the video released to the public? If they, if they 
if they just decide to drop the case, as the law of the case currently stands, the video will be made available to the public. There's already an order to that effect. Because the video has been suppressed from public view to protect Robert Kraft against tainting of the jury pool before his trial starts. So when the trial starts, video can be released. Case dismissed, video released. Plea bargain, video released. Now Kraft is trying to change that. He wants the video to be forever hidden, to be expunged, to be gone, to never come out. That's going to be the next step if the prosecution would decide, you know what, screw this. We're just not going to win these. We're going to dismiss these cases. That's when the NFL could move forward, but what would they move forward with by way of evidence? What do you do? What's your evidence at that point? You get Robert Kraft to come in and tell his story. That's the only person you have jurisdiction over. And unless he goes in and admits to soliciting prostitution, which I don't think he will do, how do you prove that he did? And if you don't have proof that he solicited prostitution, if all you know is he engaged in consensual sexual activities in a massage parlor in Jupiter, Florida, that's not a personal conduct policy violation, folks. By anyone. Player, non-player. Owner, commissioner, guy who washes the jock straps, nobody. If the league's going to start policing that, when does it stop? And trust me, if, if that kind of behavior subjects people to potential suspensions, there's going to be a lot of people suspended in the NFL. Not, not that people are engaging in consensual sex all over the place, but th- th- that's just something that you don't, you don't want to go down that path if you're the NFL. So for now, the NFL is doing the only thing it can do, which is nothing. At some point, though, they're going to have to do something. And who knows what that something is going to be. All right, what else is going on in the NFL today? I'm, I'm still, this whole Derek Carr thing, and, and I know I'm hard on the Raiders, but I, I'm only hard on the people who I think need to be called out. And I just think there's a lot of BS that's flowing from the, the Raiders right now. I really do. And, you know, I... Matt Casey, who produces PFT Live, pointed out to me today when we were talking about Derek Carr that Brock Osweiler, my, my take on him always was, he's a guy who will show up at a press conference and say all the things that he thinks a quarterback should say. He, 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 can, he can play the role when it's time to do the press conference, but he doesn't play the role when it's time to be the quarterback. I think Derek Carr is a guy who thinks he's that that he can show up and say all the right things, but he doesn't know what to say. Because this nonsense about, I'll be the quarterback in Oakland as long as I want to be, does he not pay attention to how the NFL works? From Peyton Manning to Brett Favre to John Unitas to Joe Namath and Aaron Rodgers worries about being dumped onto another team and Tom Brady's been motivated by the fear of being cut by the Patriots for 20 years. Look, Derek Carr's in jeopardy in Oakland. His ass is on the line. And maybe the Raiders have decided the best way to deal with Derek Carr is to tell him everything's fine. And you know what, Derek? Everything is fine until the moment that it's not. And by then, they won't care. You know, you you can have some whiny press conference after the fact where you say, you know, they told me that everything was going to be fine. They told me I'd be the quarterback here as long as they want. Yeah, Derek, they they psychoanalyzed you and decided that's the best way to deal with you because you're going to crumble if you think that there's any doubt regarding your status. So they made the strategic decision to prop you up to make you think that you could be the Raiders quarterback until the day you decide to retire from football, and they lied to you. 
Derek Carr, if, if they're telling Derek Carr that, they're lying to him, and he's choosing to ignore the obvious signs out there. When Mike Mayock, the GM of the team, comes out and says, hey, yeah, we worked out Kyler Murray and Dwayne Haskins because we have an obligation to try to upgrade the team at every position all the time, including quarterback. That's why we did it. Well, what's that? That's when they finally admitted how they feel, and either Derek Carr didn't see that, chose not to believe it, or ultimately decided that he's going to swallow hook, line, and sinker whatever Mark Davis, Mike Mayock, and or John Gruden tell him. And I think that they are institutionally lying to him to make him think he can be the quarterback there as long as he wants. Because they think that's the only way to get him to hold it together. And that was the concern when John Gruden became the coach. That Derek Carr was going to crumble under the aggressive coaching of John Gruden. And Chris Sims talks about this all the time. That when you're a quarterback with John Gruden, you have to have thick skin. You have to be able to look around and say, who the hell are all these other guys in the quarterback room? Am I going to still be on the roster? So I, I don't buy it. And, and the problem is the Raiders are letting Derek Carr make himself look bad to people who can see through what's going on. And you know what? They don't care because they have to do whatever they can to prop this guy up. They got to hope that this year he can play at a high level. And let me tell you, if he doesn't, he'll be gone when they go to Las Vegas. And it'll be easier next year to get rid of him than it was this year. This year, they would have had to find a trade partner because his $20 million in compensation was fully guaranteed. Next year, nothing's guaranteed. This year, it became fully guaranteed at the start of the waiver period right after the Super Bowl. And it's considered bad form to cut a guy when that's when his guarantee vests. Because typically, and we've talked about this before, if your guarantee vests in March, then that means, you know what, we can get ready if we want. If your guarantee vests in February, right after the Super Bowl, that's basically a way of dealing with the funding rule, that you intended that money to be fully guaranteed from signing. So if that's the trigger, you're going to honor it. So they've honored it for this year. They didn't trade him, but all bets are off next year. Meanwhile, Antonio Brown's not at the OTAs. And, and look, it's going to be Derek Carr's fault if the Antonio Brown thing doesn't work out. And, and I said this earlier today. Go back and look at an Antonio Brown highlight reel and watch where the ball comes in. And how many times does he lunge? Does he dive? Does he put himself in a compromising situation to try to get a football? It doesn't happen very often. Derek Carr better be accurate. Or he's going to get... Antonio Brown injured or he's going to get Antonio Brown upset or both Kyle Rudolph's at Vikings OTAs he admitted that he and the team are talking about a five-year contract extension that's something we reported last week a lot of people thought that an extension really wasn't in play talks were dead or whatever but that's exactly what's going on the question is can they they work it out can they get something done that keeps Kyle Rudolph around the Vikings have done a good job of identifying they're great young players or aging players and uh, doing what they have to do to keep them around. By the way, I should mention this before we go any farther. If you're doing a repair that needs a special tool, O'Reilly Auto Parts makes it easy with our loaner tool program. Over 80 specialized loaner tools available. We're sure to have a tool in stock to help you get the job done. Purchase the needed parts and put down a deposit on the loaner tool. Return the tool in its original condition and receive a full refund. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices. Every day the challenge for me would be keeping the 
the tool in original condition because I'm I'm not very good when it comes to using tools generally. So I avoid it whenever I can. Yeah, you know, I thought about the other day. I I uh, I I'm not real good. Uh, like at yard work, so I never do it. And I used to feel bad about that. Like, you know, I should do yard work. Like people do yard work and I just don't do yard work. And and I stopped feeling bad about it a long time ago. But every once in a while, I'll see like a neighbor doing yard work and and I'll, I'll say uh, to myself, you know, you're kind of a bum for not doing yard work. And then I remember how much I hate yard work and how bad I am at it. So I, uh, I, I just, it, it goes away quickly. It goes away quickly. One more before we get to the questions. The Oklahoma drill going the way of the dodo bird. Oklahoma drill, bird in the, or bird in the ring. No, bull in the ring. Bird in the ring, a very different drill. Bull in the ring, Oklahoma drill, king of the hill or whatever the hell they call it. I remember playing in grade school. We used to do, they call it head-ons. And you would lay down flat on your back. Two guys separated by... I don't know, 15, 20 feet. And the coach would throw the football to one of the two guys. The two guys would have to get to their feet and then they'd run straight at each other and the goal would be tackle the guy who has the ball. And you never knew who was going to get the ball. But you're laying there flat and you're just waiting. And, and he'd blow the whistle. That's what would happen. So it, because you know, if, you throw, if, if the start of it is he throws the ball to one guy, I guess you can look and see. But either way, the ball gets tossed, the whistle blows, and the two guys bang into each other. And I remember doing bull in the ring where the, you know they put that one guy in the middle and, and he just he tries to bull his way out. I don't remember doing the Oklahoma drill, but I ran a link to a clip from the Bengals hard knocks season of 2013 they've done it a couple of times but the most recent one in 2013 and i remember the most compelling moment of the first episode was when they did oklahoma drills they play a a song what's that group what's that group called uh, my they always have like really convoluted names to their songs like bizarre and this one was my songs know what you did in the dark i mean what the hell is that what is it is it fallout boy is that is that the name of the group anyway um they it, it's compelling and you, you hear from Marvin Lewis and Hugh Jackson the importance of these moments to, to bonding the team and letting the guys get physical. They do it on the first day of pads, and, and they've got the slow motion, and it, they're beating the hell out of each other, and the players are all fired up. There's a moment at the end, the last drill, Jermaine Gresham wanted to be paired up with Geno Atkins. It's a tight end on a defensive tackle. And, and the Oklahoma drill is... Two blockers and a guy with the football tries to run by, and so the, the defensive player tries to shed the block and get to the t- get to the ball carrier. And it's all in a very confined space. They put barriers down and players line it as well. And Jermaine Gresham pancakes Geno Atkins, and everybody goes nuts. And there's a question of whether or not Jermaine Gresham fired off too early before the whistle or whatever it was. But but they they scrabble or, or scrap around and. And, and Gresham drives him into the ground and, and the players go crazy. And you can see how that causes players to kind of bond together. That's gone now. The NFL's decided it's not a safe drill. And it's not. Look, they're trying to avoid any situations where unnecessary concussions are suffered by players. So you've got your live reps in games, preseason and regular season. And they're doing what they can in those games to minimize 
the instances where guys take a blow to the head. And they tried that rule last year that what a mess that that was. And then they basically abandoned that rule where anytime you lower your helmet, make contact with the helmet with an opponent anywhere, it's a 15 yard penalty and a possible fine and suspension. And they enforced it very aggressively the first two weeks of the preseason and realized what the hell are we doing here? So they're still looking for ways to remove the unnecessary blows to the head. And these drills entail, I mean, how, how necessary is this? Well, you know, and I, I don't know, it may be necessary to team building, but you know what? Go bowling instead. The coaches are going to have to find other ways to build the camaraderie to get that, that, you know, that, that bump, that oomph that you need to get guys fired up and get guys to come together. So I don't have a problem with it. I, I still think that the clip from Hard Knocks is extremely compelling, but I don't have a problem with the league doing anything aimed at making the game safer and also influencing the lower levels of the sport to make the game safer. Now the question is, will college football stop Oklahoma drills? Will high school football stop Oklahoma drills and related drills? And will youth football stop? This is the weekend where a lot of people jump in their cars and drive. And when you do, put your seatbelt on. Don't say, I'm not going very far. Don't say, I'm in a hurry. Don't say, it's uncomfortable. Don't say, you forget. How can you forget in today's cars? It's impossible to forget in today's cars because you're reminded if you don't have the thing on. So put it on. There's no good excuse for not wearing your seatbelt. And if you've used any excuses out there and avoided wearing your seatbelt, you're putting yourself at risk for injury or death. In 2017, more than 10,000 people were killed when they were unbuckled in crashes. No matter what kind of vehicle you drive, no matter where you are sitting, wear the seatbelt. You're in the back seat of an Uber, a Lyft, a cab, wear the seatbelt. Yes, you can get ticketed for not wearing a seatbelt and cops are watching. But hey, I tell you what, if I'm not wearing a seatbelt, the best bad thing that would happen is getting a ticket. The worst bad thing is happening is you get in an accident, you get ejected from the vehicle and your body gets torn to shreds or your head gets busted to nothing. Because as your body flies out of the vehicle like a missile, catapulted out of a cannon, you ain't going to live. It's better to be held in place. It's better to be in the car with the car than to get thrown out of the car. People realized that a long time ago. As I said earlier this week when we talked about it, there were years where folks did everything they could to avoid wearing that damn seatbelt. And at some point, people started to realize, you know what? We probably should wear the seatbelt. And our friends at NHTSA are telling you, please wear your seatbelt at all times, especially this weekend when there'll be so many more people out on the highways driving to wherever it is they'll be going for Memorial Day weekend. All right, let's answer some of your questions before we wrap up this Wednesday edition of PFTPM. I've seen this suggested a couple of times by PFTPM Posse, a mock trial. I'm going to stretch my lawyer legs and uh, we'll make it. Uh, no, we're just not. Do- I, I look, I appreciate the creativity. I'm not doing it. I, I'm not looking for more work. I'm not looking for things I have to prepare to do. Folks, you don't understand. For the, for me, there's a certain freedom to turning on my little ISDN box, which simulates having a radio studio, talking about whatever I want to talk about. I don't have to prepare in advance. It's a chance where I can just kind of freeform talk about anything, and that helps me prepare for everything else I have to do. 
you know, while talking today, I've thought of things that I want to write about. I've reminded myself of things I haven't written about yet, and it will help me for tomorrow morning's PFT Live. But something like that, because I said the other day that, you know, by watching the Kellen Winslow trial, it, it made me miss practicing law a little bit. And, you know, it kind of, you know, there's a little part of me that would like to go back and do that again, but that doesn't mean I want to set up a mock trial with the guy who runs the PFTPM policy account serving in the, as the judge and Tyler Forn is serving as the, the other lawyer. That, that ain't happening. That's too much work, but thank you for the idea. What else do we have here? PFTPM posse. Here's the question. Can lawyers ever throw a trial so the defendant can use the ineffective assistance of counsel on appeal? I don't think it's ever done intentionally because I, I just, I, you know, you, you guys going to be sitting in jail for a long time. I like it's like, you know, we have absolutely nothing. So let's do a crappy job defending the guy so he'll have something. I guess that that would be a strategy if you just have God awful case and you know that. They're just going to hammer you, and the witnesses are all great, and there's no way to cross-examine them effectively, and there's no way to poke any holes, and you're just done. And they're not offering a plea deal, and all your guy can do is take it. I get, I guess that, but, but then you, boy, you, that would, you'd have to. I, I can't imagine doing that. I joked about it the other day. I think that's where that question comes from. That I almost feel like Kellen Winslow's lawyer at opening statement was tanking. But you know what? The lawyer from his team that handled the cross-examination of the first victim, alleged victim, who testified against him on Tuesday, that guy wasn't tanking it. See, it, it sounds like their theory is that Kellen Winslow just drove around and had casual, one-time-only sex with just whoever he happened to see. Give somebody a ride, hey, let's have sex, okay. See some person standing out on the street. Hey, let's have sex. Okay. And there are multiple of these people who are accusing him of, of crossing the line. Of, of rape. Or of other sexual misconduct. And I don't know, if your defense is, well, you know what? He's out there just kind of randomly having sex with everyone. And they consented. I mean, I, I guess if you've got, I, you know, if, if you are warped enough that you're just out there trying to have sex with anybody you see... It's not a very far leap from not taking no for an answer. If you've got a compulsion that is that severe, that you're just out driving around, looking for anybody who's just walking around on the street, hey, let's go have sex. I mean, what, what in the hell? So the bottom line is this, though. You have to have witnesses who can tell a story that is compelling and who hold up well under cross-examination. I was watching the trial earlier today. The second alleged victim, she seemed to be telling a more compelling story on direct examination. I haven't watched any of the cross yet, but the victim yesterday just fell apart. So anyway, I the opening statement that was less than 10 minutes, it made me throw out this idea that, you know, maybe he has nothing else and they're just going to go with ineffective assistance of counsel to try to help him at some point down the road. But based upon what I saw yesterday, I think there definitely there definitely is a defense to the first claim. The other four, I don't know. But the first victim, if it was just that person, if the case was just her charge of rape against Kellen Winslow II, I think there's a, a good chance that he gets acquitted. Tyler Fornes, why have we heard nothing about LaShawn McCoy? Why is nothing progressing? I don't know that anything's happening. I think they'd maybe like to trade him, but 
you know, what, what they could be doing is sitting back and waiting for training camp to come around, preseason to come around, and they go to them and say, hey, you're due $6 million plus this year. We want to pay you less than that if you want to be on this team. And by then, there aren't any viable options. So he says yes, and he sticks around. Or he says no, and he gets cut then. And they have a better chance to evaluate their rookies and see how Frank Gore's doing, and maybe they just don't need LaShawn McCoy. But my internet son's intrepid news hound, Leroy, suggested a couple of weeks ago that LaShawn McCoy was going to get cut as soon as today, whatever day that was. And then there was some talk about maybe a trade. I just think that that they... Uh, they're not being aggressive about it. There's different ways to do this. I mean, with Gerald McCoy in Tampa, we knew Tampa Bay didn't want him. So they weren't going to be able to trade him. The Bills may be going through the motions here in the hopes that they can dupe someone into offering something. Josh Randall recommends Sneaky Pete on Amazon Prime if you like mafia crime shows. I watched the first season. I thought it was really good. Into the second season, it lost my attention. I'm going to have to go back and dust it off and start up with season two again. I may just have to do season two over. I remember thinking season one was great and I was recommending it to people. Once I get into season two, it's like, man, I feel bad I recommended this to people. So hopefully it picks up. And I know Brian Cranston's one of the executive producers and he, he was a, a character and he was very good in the first season. But by the second season, it was just getting a, too, a little too complicated, a little too hard to follow. And it wasn't as enjoyable as it was the first season, but I have to give it another try now. Let's see. I'm, I'm scrolling through some of these. There's a lot here, and I want to wrap this up, and a lot of stuff I've already talked about. Sean Alvishar wants to know if I've had the chance to sample 12-year-old Whistle Pig Rye Whiskey. It will change your life. I haven't, but uh, I'll have to give it a try if I can come across it at some point. G2 Paz, who's had the better career so far, and Dominican Sue or Gerald McCoy? I'd probably say Sue, just because Sue's made a hell of a lot more money. But Shereen Williams was on PFT Live with me today, and she made a good point. I mean, Gerald McCoy was a better pass rusher last year than Adamican Sue, and he didn't have Aaron Donald next to him. It's going to be very interesting to see how much they they um, pay Adamican Sue. Because $13 million for McCoy versus X for Adamican Sue. I suggested the over-under is $8.5 million in base salary, up to $10 million for Sue. But I still haven't seen that the deal's done. Maybe it is. I haven't seen how much they're paying Indomitian Sue. And you know what? If it was something to brag about, the initial report to Shefty would have included the number. Because I think Indomitian Sue is still a CAA client, and so is Shefty, and that pipeline is there. And if there was a number that was to be trumpeted, it would have been trumpeted in the initial report from Shefty. All right, what else do we have here? CZ Wald, Kurt Cousins aside, do you think the Minnesota defense will rise this season, or do they take another step back as offensive coordinators further exploit the Zimmer A-gap blitz scheme and decent slash not great secondary? I know this. I know there are coaches in the NFL that know where the weaknesses are in that defense. And remember what happened in the NFC Championship game? The Vikings had not self-scouted themselves, as Sims would say, and there were weaknesses, there were flaws in that defense that after 14, 16 rather, excuse me, regular season games and a postseason game against the Saints, the flaws were exploited. You have to, you can't, look, I am not a firm believer in a system and here's how we're always going to you know, we're going to, we're going to deploy our guys this way. This is our system. And yes, there's going to be some tweaks within those confines, but I think you have to have the flexibility to come up with whatever 
approach you need to have to deal with the offense that you're going to be playing because eventually you're going to come up against somebody who can crack the code of your defense. Flexibility is the key. That's why the Patriots have six Super Bowls. They are flexible on both sides of the ball. They look at what you do offensively and defensively, and they come up with game plans on both sides of the ball aimed at beating you. It ain't all that hard to understand what you need to do. It may be hard and may require a level of diligence and work ethic that not everyone has to crack those codes, to spend the time wisely, to do what needs to be done to get to the answer of what it takes to to score more points than the other team. And that's that's success in the NFL. Forget about analytics. and you know I, I know those things have a role. But the bottom line is, each and every week, this opponent coming up, the next team we play, how do we score more points than they do within the confines of the overall rules that apply to the sport? And that's why Bill Belichick always is focused on the next opponent. He keeps his players always focused on the next opponent. It doesn't matter that they've got a short week primetime game against their biggest rival three days later. The focus is on the next opponent. And once that game's over, what happens? The focus is on the next opponent. That's how you win in football. Bill Belichick's the James Holzhauer of football. He's cracked the code. He's figured out how to prepare teams mentally and physically. Sims and I were talking within the last week or so about how the Patriots continue to obsess over technique because as you get deeper into the season, your technique can get sloppy. And then what happens is you start to exhibit tells that people see on film, how you're lining up at the snap, whether you're going to run block or pass block. Little things like that come out. Little things like that can be exploited. And if you give the defense any type of an edge where they can figure out what you're going to do, before you do it or if the offense can figure out what the defense is doing before it does it that, that's that's the thing that you know over the course of a game 60 minutes if you've got that little edge baked in to your preparation both sides of the ball it's going to make a difference jmal951 Vikings have five primetime games this year. Do you think if they can win three out of five, does that give them a chance at the playoffs? Their five opponents are all playoff contenders. Look, I I hate to boil down their ability to get to the playoffs by focusing only on their ability to win in primetime, but but they've got to win those games. And that was the point Mike Zimmer made when he met with Sims and me at the league meetings. One of the things about primetime games, you're playing good teams. So you know what? Sometimes you're going to lose those games. So whether those games are played in the afternoon or they're played at night, whether played in the morning, you've got to be able to step up and play effectively against good teams. And the year the Vikings made it to the Final Four, they were rattling off win after win against quality quarterbacks, quality teams. And that's that, that laser focus, one week at a time. What does it take to win this week? Let's go win this week. Next week, what does it take to win? Let's go do what we have to do. Frank Chavowee, what are the chances the Cowboys signed Gerald McCoy? Shereen Williams said that's not what they do. They're not going to chase that name. They're not going to pay that money. That, that it's unlikely that the Cowboys would make that move. Peter Shimon, if Daniel Jones does end up starting week one for the Giants and Eli decides to waive his no-trade clause, would there be any takers? Is any team that desperate? Look, I, I, we got a lot of steps to go before we get to that point. But remember what happened three years ago? Teddy Bridgewater's knee implodes at a practice two weeks before the start of the regular season. 
and Sam Bradford, who was going to be the week one starter, not Carson Wentz in Philadelphia, all of a sudden is available and traded to the Vikings for a one and a four. You can't rule out anything like that. You never know when a situation like that is going to repeat itself, but because a situation like that has happened in the past, it tells me we can never rule out the possibility that something like that will happen. So first, you have to have Daniel Jones perform well enough that the Giants say, well, you know, we made this guy sixth overall for a reason. He's better than our aging veteran franchise quarterback. And then, you know, you wait for an opportunity for someone to need a veteran quarterback and they would want Eli Manning for one year and Eli Manning would decide I'll uproot my life and I'll play for this team because otherwise I'm not playing this year. All right. What else do we have here? Manual focus one. What is the Rooney rule anyway? Are you being sarcastic? Am I missing something here? I mean, the Rooney rule is the, the provision that has been around for 17, 18 years now. It requires every team to interview at least one minority candidate for head coaching jobs and high-level front office job, GM. I don't know where the... I know, like, the GM job. I don't know what other jobs require it, but initially it was just for coaches. And, you know, the problem is, ultimately, teams are going to hire who they want to hire. And too many teams go into the process with an idea, a firm idea of who they want to hire. And they don't change their mind. The Rooney Rule, at a minimum, requires them to, to, to just press pause a little bit. To have a little bit more of a deliberative search. And it also allows for minority candidates to get their names injected into the conversation. So after a certain number of interviews, number one, they get better because they've had more reps. And number two, at some point, it just becomes a sense it's a done deal. This person's going to get an opportunity. But, you know, look, it, it has not been an overwhelming success, but it has served the NFL's purpose of avoiding litigation because I think the NFL was dangerously close to some sort of litigation that would have been filed by minority assistant coaches, maybe minority scouts and front office people who believe that NFL owners have had a habit of hiring people who look like them, talk like them, grew up like them. They have that quicker rapport because these are the people we're instantly comfortable with. That's the thinking. That if you don't require the decision makers to get out of that comfort zone, of the person who you know I can relate to because that's how I grew up, and I, and I, it's it's sad to think that that's the way the world is, but that's what was going on in the NFL, and we still see now. Look, as far as GMs are concerned, there's an underrepresentation of minority general managers, and as far as head coaches go, I, I don't. I mean, when you consider the percentage of African American players. And the problem is the opportunities aren't there at offensive coordinator. That is the key. The more offensive coordinators that are minorities, the more head coaches there will be because that's where the teams are looking. And that's how you overcome that that very subtle bias that is very real and was real for years. I remember what a big deal it was when the Vikings hired Dennis Green. That Art Shell and Dennis Green in the early 90s were the only two modern-era African-American head coaches. Can you, I mean, how in the hell does that happen? Well, it happened. And that's what culminated roughly a decade later in the, in the Rooney Rule. And, you know, there's so many people out there, oh, this is horrible. Oh, let, let people hire whoever they want. They ultimately do hire whoever they want. But the results speak for themselves, folks. And people get so mad at me when I point out, like, for example, the end run that the Raiders did around the Rooney Rule where they essentially had a, an agreement in place with John Gruden before... 
they fired Jack Del Rio, and the NFL gave them a pass. See, there are too many occasions where a team will only get rid of the coach that it has if it knows it can get the coach that it wants, and that's exactly what Mark Davis did. Mark Davis was going to keep Jack Del Rio if he couldn't get John Gruden. So he got John Gruden verbally and then got rid of Jack Del Rio and did a perfunctory, meaningless, disrespectful to the process Rooney Rule search and hired John Gruden. And, of course, the reaction from the Raiders fans who don't like it pointed out that the Raiders trampled on the Rooney rule. Oh, well, they, they had Art Shell and they had, you know, they had uh, Amy Trask as the CEO of the organization and, and they had Reggie McKenzie as the GM. Well, that, that doesn't give you a free pass to violate the letter and the spirit of the Rooney rule going forward. But that's the problem. You've got billionaires who like to do what they want to do and they don't like to be told what to do. And they put this thing in place to protect their assets and their asses against major liability. And the major liability would have been there. And I wonder at some point whether or not that opportunity for some sort of a class action, some sort of a litigation regarding what continue to be not all that respectable hiring practices as it relates to the concentration of minority players and the percentage of minority coaches. Eric Bieniemy should be a head coach right now. He didn't even get a sniff. He's the offensive coordinator for the team with the best offense in football. And he didn't get a sniff this year. But God forbid you point that out. You get shouted down, stick to football. I am sticking to football. I didn't make the Rooney rule. Football did. It's like any other rule. If it's not being followed, it's, you can point it out. It's not being followed. All right. G2 Paz, what are your thoughts concerning the Browns-Cowboys envelope on your desk? It's been three years now. It'll be three years. It's, it's over there on the credenza. If I wasn't so lazy, I'd go... I, I think it was 20... I don't know when I did it. I... I Maybe it was two years ago. I have to go look at it. At one point, I said that in five years, I wrote it down, I put it in an envelope, and it says, do not open until whatever it is, August 1 of 2022, maybe. 2021 or 2022, that the Browns will be regarded as a better organization than the Cowboys. And that was when they hired Hugh Jackson, and they went 1-31. It's like, oh, wow. So it must have been three years ago. I wouldn't have done it after 1-15 with Hugh Jackson, so it was three years ago. So I got two years left. Will the Cowboys be regarded as a lesser organization than the Browns in two years? I'm not so sure about that. It's moving in the right direction for now for the Browns, but they got a lot to do in the next two years. they got a lot to prove. Mike likes dirt. Oh, another question about the hypothetical meetup. What events would you put in a PFTPM Posse skills challenge? Throwing of the football, grilling of steaks, 12-ounce curl, 12-ounce. 12-ounce? I think 12-pound I, maybe? 12-pound would be a little bit better. Steph Boyardee, when do you think the Dolphins will make the playoffs? I think they could, in, in theory, I don't, you, any team could make the playoffs any year. I, there have been years where I've said, I'll pick a given team and say, that team has no chance. Every other team has a chance, that team has no chance. Now, going into this year, I don't know that there's a team that I would look at and say, that team has no chance. I, I I mean, you could say, I guess, even I'm not prepared to say the Cardinals have no chance because if Kyler Murray ends up being the next Patrick Mahomes, Baker Mayfield, and it declares itself right away, they do have a chance. Eddie Horse Sports, so the divisional round games are changed to 3 and 6.30 Eastern, just like the championship round. Wouldn't it make sense to do it for the wild card round as well? That way everyone knows the time for all playoff games except the Super Bowl, which we all know is the same every year. I... I, I I don't know why they don't do... That's the Sunday divisional round, right? 
6.30 and 6.30. They should do the Sunday wildcard round at the same time. The more of these games you can push the audience later in the day, the bigger the audience is going to be. And it's probably a matter of time before they do it for the the Sunday of wildcard weekend. That 1 o'clock and 4 o'clock, and I remember when I was a kid, it was 12.30 and 4. That's just the way it was. So many of the things that most organizations do, they do because that's just the way it is. And they don't change it. Why are you doing that? And that's just It was like that when I got here. Those are the three rules that Homer Simpson imparted to Bart to get by in business. Good idea, boss. Um, cover for me. And it was like that when I got here. All right, let's see what else we have. Stephen Wise, 89, when you get the occasional itch to practice law again, do you ever think about teaching law classes? No. Thank you for introducing that idea. It'd be a pain in the ass. I'd have to drive to Morgantown. I'd have to leave an hour or so to make sure I get there on time. And nah, I don't want to do that. Nope. The Shawnee Rells, do you ever think about if you had followed through on your engineering career, what do you think you would have specialized in? Asking is someone starting their engineering career in two weeks. I hated engineering. Hated it. I got pushed into it because I was 18 years old and I was quote unquote smart. So I was good at math, good at math and science of all things. And, and what I do now is so opposite math and science. And anytime math gets injected into the equation, I just kind of run the other way. But I was great at math, great at science. There was an engineer that lived in the neighborhood and I got nudged into engineering. And, and I, di I didn't know. I don't know what I, I want to do. I want to be 18. I want to go drink beer with my friends. I want to hang out. I want to, I want to enjoy being 18 because I'm going to wake up one day and I'm going to be 53. So I, I just didn't care. So I kind of went with it. And I remember the first year I was at Carnegie Mellon, which God, it was such a stressful experience because I felt like I was always a step behind everybody else. And I just, I, and, and the problem also was I didn't work nearly hard enough because I was 18. Like I had this dumbass idea that on the weekends I wasn't studying. Well, jokes on you then, idiot. Other people would be, you know, at the library and in their rooms and exercising some discipline. And I'm thinking, hey, what are we going to do today? Hey, let's go pass Frisbee. Let's go get drunk. Let's go, you know, be 18. And it's a horrible time to be in college. You should be able to enjoy 18, 19, 20. So anyway, um, I remember that first year. You take general engineering classes, and at some point you have to pick a discipline. And the disciplines at Carnegie Mellon at the time were electrical engineering, mechanical, chemical, civil, and metallurgical engineering and material science. And I knew nothing about that. And ultimately, I just picked that because well, I don't know anything about it, and it was the smallest. It was the smallest group, so I thought, you know what, it's going to be less intimidating, and maybe I can figure this out and see what it's all about. And it really is a vestige of the steelmaking industry, and They've gotten away from the... I think they've changed the name of it because nobody's manufacturing metals anymore. So it's all composites and ceramics and other stuff like that. But um, I, I just... I, I did not like it. I did not like it. I was not good at it. I, uh, I wasn't as good as I wanted to be. I was good enough to get by, but I never want to be good enough to get by. So... I remember in 1987 when it was introduced to me, the possibility of going to law school. That was when the, the, the light went off. Like, I didn't even know I could go to law school. I thought you had to have, you know, political science degree or something like that. So I, I wanted nothing to do with engineering. I wanted nothing to do with working with a large corporation where you get moved around like a, a piece on a gigantic chessboard. And, and, you, and you know, the refineries, I, I worked in, in a co-op program at Chevron and um, 
that's how they kind of indoctrinate people and they groom them. And I was there long enough to see that, you know, after a year or two, this guy gets moved to some remote city in Texas that, you know, isn't close to anything. And then after two years there, they're in another remote city that isn't close to anything. And you just kind of get bounced around and you hope that you keep climbing the ladder. And then maybe after 15 years, you find yourself in a corporate gig and you're back in, you know, the Northern California area. And it's like, I I never wanted to be, and and look, I respect anybody who's in a gig like this. I never wanted to be so beholden to my employer that Basically, wherever they say you go, you go and you uproot your family and you go and you understand that your opportunity for advancement or survival hinges on your willingness to know when to say, okay. And at what point do you reach the limit of your growth? And then you feel like, okay, well, that's it for me. I got to go find something else. I never wanted to be stuck in a mechanism where I didn't have complete control over my career my future and how I was going to live my life. I never wanted that. So anyway, I look, I may not be the best person to ask about an engineering career because it wasn't for me. And that's why I didn't do it. All right. Enough about that. Dean Osborne 42 is Todd Gurley as a practical matter, pretty much done in the NFL due to the knee issues. Something's not right here. I'm not ready to say he's done. I'm ready to say his best days are behind him. And I'm ready to say that the Rams, if they would admit the truth, regret paying him when they did. And I think that Ezekiel Elliott should look at what happened to Todd Gurley and make himself even more resolved to get paid now. But I'm not ready to say he's done. All right. Let's see what else we have. <laughs> How long before the TMZ leaks the Robert Kraft video? I'm guessing it'll be mid-trial. That's at on tour forever. I think the, the Robert Kraft video, I don't think we're ever going to see it. I don't think we're ever going to see it. And and I think if anyone from law enforcement leaks it, I think they'll figure out who did it, and that person is going to be in significant trouble. Sean Alvishar, is Dave Gettleman in good position to get another job? If the Jets do well, he built the roster. Oh, you mean Mike? You mean Mike McCagnan? Is Mike McCagnan in good position to get another job? If the Jets do well, he built the roster. If they don't, he can blame poor owner and Adam Gase. I, I, I just look at it this way. Most general managers, once they get fired, they don't get another bite at the apple. Gettleman did. Panthers to the Giants. John Dorsey did. Browns after the Chiefs. For the most part, you just have to... You go back to a front office and you work for somebody else and you become a scout again. J. Randall 15. Best question of the week. Why does Sims keep trying to get you to move to Connecticut when it would actually be easier for him to move to West Virginia? West Virginia has a lower cost of living and you're his boss. First of all, I'm not his boss. And I think that NBC likes the fact that he lives like five minutes away from the studio. So I think he just does it because that's his thing. Just like I, I bust his chops about certain things. He busts my chops about that. And, oh, it's nice having you in the studio. You ought to move up here. I mean, look, I wouldn't want him to have to move away from his family, which is up in the area where he lives. And ultimately, deep down, he's a, he doesn't want me to have to move away from mine. And, and, I, and I don't, look, I've been with NBC 10 years now as of July 1. And actually, today is the day. I just thought of this. 10 years ago today, we entered into a verbal agreement with NBC that was later finalized on June 8 of 2009. But it was 10 years ago today that we had a deal. And in 10 years with NBC, they you know, they never made me move. I remember early on thinking, oh, you know, I may have to move at some point. And, you know, they were like, oh, yeah, check out these apartments. It's like, you know, it's a closet for a million dollars. But, 
you know, early on, there was kind of a fascination of possibly doing something like that, but it, it never really went anywhere. And my, my wife's family is all here and, and that that's very important to us. And it's important to us to have our son in this environment and to be there to help, help them and, and be around. And, and so I, you know, if they haven't made me move after 10 years, I don't think they're going to make me move over the next 10 or however long they keep me around until they kick my ass out. All right. L- let me kick my own ass out of your listening device. I know there's some other questions here and I'm sorry I didn't get to all of them, but about an hour and 15 minutes is long enough, isn't it? And I did both of the reads. I did. So we covered everything we needed to cover and I appreciate all of your questions. And I'm sorry every once in a while I take a question that has nothing to do with football. But again, I use this. I don't, I, I still don't know why I do this. I really don't. Let, let me be introspective here for about 90 seconds before we wrap it up. I was thinking about this earlier today. I started doing what became PFTPM when I was on hiatus from PFT Live several years ago, and I wanted there to be something in the PFT Live podcast feed so it just wouldn't go dark for four weeks. So I started doing a half hour. And and then I realized, you know, okay, I like doing it because it'll be an easier transition when PFT Live starts up again, that I've still been talking extemporaneously. And anytime you get reps doing that, you're not going to get worse. You're only going to get better or at least retain your skills. And I think if you do get away from it, for too long, it's always a little bit hard to get back to that point where you feel comfortable. So I, I wanted to always keep that saw sharp. And I don't know, I would just keep doing it. And 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 I've said, you know, we do the couple ads, but it's, it's not, look, I don't know, I don't want to disrespect our sponsors, but they're not paying huge money for these ads. Okay, this isn't, uh, pardon my take, with $150,000 an episode, that's for damn sure. I like doing it. I hope you like listening to it. I don't know how much it's going to grow. It's grown some. It's not like we go out of our way to promote it. It's not like anybody's really promoting it. We have guests sometimes. I, I just kind of like doing it. And I don't know. I hope you like listening to it. I do every once in a while go through that. Man, wouldn't it be great? On, on days when I don't do it, and it's like a different vibe in the afternoon, I can work on the website more, maybe take a, a little bit of a longer nap to supplement the five hours at best that I get of sleep every night. I kind of think, man, it'd be nice not to do this every day. It'd be kind of nice to not do this more than once or twice a week. It may be nice not to do this at all. So I I still go through that. Um, And I guess it's healthy to always have those doubts and that angst and that, am I doing the right thing here? Should I keep doing it? I assume that I, you know, that there's enough people listening to it that I should keep doing it. But I, you know, you never know when I'm going to wake up one day and say, yeah, I've had enough of that. Um, But for now, I haven't had enough of it. I've had had enough of it for today though. It's time to get back to the, to the, uh, the PFT website grindstone, which really, yeah, it's not work. We were talking about that today on PFT Live. I mean, it's really not work. People have real jobs, and there are plenty of real jobs that suck. I've had them. And I feel bad for anybody that's got a job they hate. And I can remember sitting there looking at the clock and swearing it was going backward. And and, and I'm, I'm fortunate and I'm grateful that I do this. And and even if I do this and don't make any money off of the PFT PM podcast, I'm, I'm glad that... You know, if you listen to it on your way to work, if you listen to it on your way home, if you listen to it while you're doing the yard work that I hate to do, and, and if, if it helps you get through a day, and, and it's weird, because I know I have things that, you know, certain things I want to watch on TV or certain things I want to listen to, and I look forward to it, and I still can't imagine anybody gives a shit about what I say, but if it does help you get through your day, then I guess it's worth it. If there's only like three people, it helps get through their day, then I guess it's worth it, but I still would like to make more money doing it. All right. That was more than 90 seconds and that was more than 75 minutes. And this has been more than enough for today's PFT PM podcast. Sims is back from assignment tomorrow on PFT live. 
profootballtalk.com around the clock. We'll do at least one more this week, probably tomorrow, and then I'll leave the door open for Friday because, you know, Friday into that Memorial Day weekend, you never know what kind of crap is going to get dumped by the NFL onto uh, the media as they try to get people not to pay attention to it. We'll be paying attention, and if needed, we'll definitely do one on Friday. Have a great day. We'll talk to you again, most likely tomorrow. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.